Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 40th Blockbuster episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that is always willing to explore new frontiers. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James, and good evening, everyone. I'm looking forward to our show and some interesting topics tonight. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, we got a little bit of a shakeup in the in the uh, arrangement of our segments this week. Why don't you break it down for everybody? Sure. Well, we're running back our our normal four segments, but it's it's gonna the the time distribution is gonna shift a little bit. Segment one is our top movers, where we're gonna talk about the cards that have increased in price the most recently. But it's a short list this week. Segment two is our cards to watch. These are the cards James and I have our eyes on uh, as potential gainers over time. Segment three is our metagame week in review. We're going to check in on a recent Hallelujah Frontier event. And finally, segment four, our topic of the week is going to be the spec score. Um, this is the article James published earlier this week uh, that's sort of like a, a formula for determining the the speculative value of an individual card. So we'll dive into that um, a little later on. So let's start segment one, top movers. Uh, we have, we have three this week. Do you want, do you want the first and the third or the middle one there? I'll take the middle one. All right. Well, we'll start out with memory jar from Urza's legacy. We're looking at the foil copy specifically started around 40 this week, uh, jumped up to about 60. I'm looking at um, near mint copies over on TCG player and there's only two left. Um, but the, the market price is still at 40, of course, with a card like this, uh, the, the, the next copy to sell really could cost 60, 70 or 80 bucks, but they sell so infrequently that it will take a while for, for those market prices to update. Um, but this is a reserve list card for those of you, I'm pretty sure, right? I'm not just making that up. Uh, yeah, I believe that's true. Because this snuck in well under the uh, under the FBI before the FTVs. Yep, it is reserve list. So, um, you know, reserve list foil really popular or really powerful. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone out there is really making a lot of money on this, but I wouldn't be surprised if the price is reasonably sticky. Yeah, I think this is the kind of card you can just hold. Uh, this isn't the kind of spike that immediately floats back down. It is a card with some demand. It's not just some random polar kraken or something. Memory Jar is an utterly, utterly busted card. And the only reason it's not worth more money is because it's so powerful that in many formats, it just doesn't make sense to play it. You're not going to make any friends um, running it at your kitchen table. So the, you know, there's uh, the supply on these has been, as with many of the reserve list cards that are actually good, um, has been low or low-ish for quite some time. And uh, I think you can kick back if you've got any nice foils sitting around and wait to see where they go in the next year or two. Yeah, yeah. The whole too good to actually be allowed to be played with is it's probably a pretty, pretty real hurdle. Yeah. Uh, all right. What's your card? All right, so the other one that's making a big move on the foil scene would be uh, Leovold, Emissary of Trest. Uh, this is uh, a pretty popular commander coming out of Conspiracy 2, um, and the foils have been just through the roof. Um, somebody look, looks like somebody took a swap, uh, a stab at buying uh, 
a significant portion of the, the market recently, moving the foils from 135 to the lowest posted price being over 300 for almost 150% gain. Um, hard to tell if anybody's going to pay that price, but um, even if this settles in the 150 to 200 range, that's uh, some nice returns for whoever got in on that action. Yep, and you know we've seen this pop up a little bit here and there. Um, I don't know if we've really talked about it a lot on our price increases. I think we did like one week prior, but it does keep floating around um, in in the lower percentage gainers in the you know five to to twenty percent gains. Uh, but the non foil copies, I'm kind of thinking more of, and the foil too. So um, this was a huge hit for EDH players. Runaway card from Conspiracy Two, um, no question about that. I, I do find um, that they I have to imagine that Wizards kind of knew what they had when they printed this. So I would not be surprised to see a Leovold return. Um, I guess I'm not sure where the next place they could put him is. So it might be a couple months before he comes back. Um, but I, I would be surprised if we saw Leovold like twice next year. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you need one copy for yourself, a personal copy, uh, I guess I wouldn't feel too bad about picking it up. But foils especially, I would be a little hesitant to get too deep on. Well, based on the fact that Duretti was in the first conspiracy and showed up in Commander 2016, then it stands to reason that um, Leovold would be fair game for Commander 2017, especially if his price is out of control and the demand level is high um, and even the non-foils start to move. Um, one of the interesting lessons here is that commanders that are in Commander product um, have trouble gaining momentum, especially the ones from the last few years, because... Um, everybody that's interested in Commander um, buys those Commander decks up front so that they can get the Commander. Um, and the value this year especially is pretty good, so anybody who's a Commander fan is probably going to get all of the new Commanders, or at least the ones that they're interested in. And that means that you know most of the people that, that, that need it have it, and therefore it's difficult for the market to move the needle. However, when a Commander, uh, a good Commander shows up in another product, um, like Conspiracy 2, and that product's not on, not on the shelf for that long or doesn't get opened for that long. I mean, how many drafts actually, like, you know, this, this they put all this effort into building this amazing limited format for Conspiracy 2, and I question how many of us have ever actually tried it. Um, you know, with Conspiracy 1, I remember that the, the drafting action was pretty hot and heavy for a couple weeks and then just fell right through the floor. And I got the impression that uh, leading into Eldritch Moon and Kaladesh, um, that uh, Conspiracy 2 was equally uh, underappreciated as a limited format. On the basis of all of that, um, you know, that, that helps explain why these foils, which are in a relatively low supply from the get-go, um, have been able to move so quick and so high. Yes, for sure, for sure. And, um, you know, Leobold especially, because not only is he a great commander, he, you know, if you're playing Salt High anything in EDH, he's very useful. Um so you know, he he has utility both at the at the helm and also just playing back up in the ninety nine. And now there's all of these four color decks that are showing up, and he can fit into a lot of them. So yeah, a lot of traction for him. Just to keep in mind, I, I kind of I, I find myself coming back to monocrypt, right? Like, oh wow, we don't have a monocrypt for twenty years, and suddenly what do we get? Three, two or three, right? It was like Internal Masters and the FTV. And there was a judge promo, but I guess that was a couple of years ago. The point being is that you could suddenly find yourself with several copies in the span of a year. Um, so don't, I guess, I just don't put yourself in a position where you're going to get blown out by a reprint someplace. Yeah, I mean, it's not iconic. I mean, Mana Crypt's one thing. It's it's iconic, and, and they knew it would drive demand in the products that they added it to. 
Leovold mm-hmm. is very specifically for the commander crowd, and I can definitely believe that they're willing to print in-demand uh, commander cards sooner rather than later so that they don't choke off uh, the potential for people to enjoy the format. Um, yeah. I don't think we see it twice or three times. I definitely think there's a risk we see it once. Um, I don't think it's within the year because they do they do still plan most products you know more than a year in advance um and only make last minute adjustments as as necessary um as they recently had to do and they made standard longer again for uh either revolt um and amonkhet uh but the uh you know i think leovold's probably safe until commander 2017 at which point you know maybe all bets are off yeah but i mean it's still only a year you know doesn't, doesn't um, give right. you a lot of a lot of time to get out. That's for sure, and it's yeah. not easy to unload these three hundred dollar plus foils. No, no, no. You'll be lucky to find probably maybe one person per GP in that room wants it, and good luck finding them. Um, but let's uh, let's let's move on. Uh, top gainer this week: Pact of the Titan from Future Sight foil and non foil copies. Uh, non foil started a dollar. They're hanging around five or six right now. I started laughing when I saw this because I feel like it had to have been within the month or close to it that we uh, did one of our old episodes and I specifically commented. I'm like, you know, every single one of these free spells has gone nuts in price. Pack to the Titan. Maybe, you you know, you pick up a handful of these at a dollar and stash them because who knows? Well, here we are. And the card is like 500% increase. Uh, Although from what I understand, this is strictly a intentional buyout. Um, I didn't see any deck lists with this. I guess there's a combo out there. I think something other than Hivevine, perhaps, uh, because, you know, Hivevine's been known for a while. But it does seem like um, somebody just bought them out. There were people talking about it. I found on Reddit that nobody could put a link a source to it either. So this might have just been somebody making a push. Um, so not exactly a a real uh, price increase at all. And uh, if there's no demand at all, the price at six bucks is not going to stick. But um, in any case, somebody turned their attention to it. Yeah, I I forget what the condo combo is that i saw last week but i re- <laughs> i'll tell you this much as useful as it is um I, I wasn't particularly impressed and it didn't lead me to believe that the card was going to be able to hold the plateau very easily mm-hmm. um, well any copy any combo with three cards is already playing from way behind although never ever count out future sight future sight yeah. is you know <laughs> about as good as it gets from the finance perspective so um anything yeah there are actually only eight future site tarmogoyfs in existence that's it that's how few there are just eight (laughs) all right so moving on to our cards to watch this week um this is the stuff that we are considering picking up or have picked up um maybe i'll jump in um my theme this week is uh undervalued mythics from oath of the gatewatch a a set that we've come back to again and again this year um looking for targets because um both because i believe that eldrazi winter probably foreshortened the amount of product that was sold um, but also because uh, the the result of that has been that a lot of card there were a lot of interesting cards in the set that fell out of the metagame and standard um, and have floated extremely low um, versus their power level and pretty much all three of the examples that I'll provide um, definitely have potential for the future um, if you're willing to go through a long term hold cycle. So the first choice is Mirror Pool. This is the uh, colorless land um, that allows you to copy an instant or sorcery spell that you cast. Um, So it has a fork effect, a very unique effect for a land. Um, And I'd say my confidence level on this is about a 7. The timeline, like I said, is definitely long. But we're talking about a mythic that's available for $1.50. And that's, you know, bottom of the basement. That's a bulk mythic uh, by any definition. 
And if this was even to get up to, say, $6 once the supply drains out of the market, um, you'd be looking at really reasonable returns. Um, there's a ton of inventory out there. Nobody is really posited uh, a, a solid use for this card but because of its ability to do kind of disgusting things um, if the right card appears I would say you know you might be holding this for a year you might be holding this for three years you might be holding it for five years so you have to compare this to other uh, options that you have and like I said with the supply as deep as it is there's no reason to go rushing into it but if you get a coupon or something down the road and you can snap these up for say a dollar for 20 or 30 copies um, that's the kind of you know uh, high risk, high reward spec. I'm willing to put, you know, 20% of my portfolio into at any given time. I think this is a this is a great one, especially because I have I have thought about this card in the past, and then I kind of forgot about it. Um, so those are the types of cards that are are usually can do pretty well in the long term. As people just completely forgot they exist, you pick up a bunch of copies for cheap, and then a little while later you find out about them. Um, and suddenly they're, you know, they're three bucks higher. So it's the cards that people kind of forget about and aren't paying attention to that can definitely do well for you. So I like this choice quite a bit. You know what? I just, I just realized it's got a second, another ability on there. <laughs> mm-hmm. The yeah, land comes it, into play tapped taps for a colorless for two and a colorless. You copy an instant or sorcery for four and a colorless. You put a token onto the battlefield. That's a copy of target creature you control. Um, that screams EDH to me. Uh, oh yeah, 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 for sure. And an EDH-ready mythic land um, that can slot into any deck. Um, yeah, I, I can buy into that. So that's a little extra bonus. Yep, for sure, for sure. So it's right. basically a mini Riku. So hit me with your first pick. Yeah, I am looking at uh, Chromatic Lantern. Um, this was just reprinted in the uh, Commander 16 set. Um, only one of the five decks, which is important. If this was all five decks, it'd be another story. And the price has come down pretty hard, and I don't think it's probably going to bottom out a little bit more. Um, but this has been a, a slow and steady gainer since Return of the Ravnica. The, the copies kind of finally dried up for good sometime earlier last year, and that's when you saw the price price start to rise. Um I think Star City had copies of this on sale for four recently. Uh, if you can get it, if you can find Chromatic Lanterns for three, um, I mean, obviously buying under market is is not exactly helpful advice. But if this drifts down towards three, um, I think that it's worth keeping an eye on these, and, you know, kind of starting to hoard them because there were a lot of people who picked up who are picking up these new commander decks. They're really cool. They put a lot of uh, four color commanders on the table. And in three-color decks, Chromatic Lantern is not a must-have. In four-color, that changes pretty significantly, especially if you don't have a full access to a full complement of mana-fixing lands. You know, if you had run every fetch you want and every duel and every shock and every um, Peru land and what have you, Chromatic Lantern is not as important. But for anyone who doesn't have uh, that type of mono base at their disposal, Chromatic Lanterns are, do a lot of work for them. So I think th- the demand here has increased uh, more so than supply has. Um, and if you know if prices are a little low, I think you can grab them in the three to four dollar range and kind of hang out on them. And then you know maybe in a year or two, uh, they could have they could have doubled up again. Um, they're not going to be a really sexy spec, um, but they'll be safe and secure. With one huge caveat that you have to dodge reprints. I you know I, I can't tell you whether they're going to reprint it or not. Uh, I like it enough that if I find them at three, I will buy them and not worry too much about the reprints because even if it gets reprinted, I will just have to wait a little bit longer. But you should know that that is a uh, a concern here. One of the things I think that protects it is that 
if you're not familiar, Chromatic Lantern is a three casting cost artifact. It says lands you control have add one mana of any color to your mana pool, and it can add one mana of any color to your mana pool. The problem with this card in Standard is that it really warps um, the availability of color fixing because you can basically, five color decks become just really straightforward, uh, especially if there's any like um, assistive green fixing um, in the format. So I don't, I, I don't think they're in a rush to add this back into uh, a multi, uh, a format in st- a standard format, unless we go to a multicolor themed plane, um, which we have no indication that we are so far. Um, it's a perennial like top ten card in EDH, um, as far as I understand it. The and it's very worth noting that of the masterpiece series, um, if you check out inventory for foil chromatic lanterns um, from masterpiece. There's only like 22 results on TCG Player, and they range from as low as $54 up to $70, which suggests to me that that inventory is going to drain um, sooner rather than later. And the other thing about it being reprinted in 2016 is that the original foils from Return to Ravnica, um, barring a standard reprint that I don't think we're getting anytime soon, especially given that we're just this card has just now been made available again to commander players, so they don't really they're not really in need, and they're the primary audience. So on that basis, the the foils for the regular copies being as low as fourteen dollars looks crazy low to me because this was a card that was at 20 or 25 in the regular foils prior to the inventions showing up and there's only 30 results of those foils um i'm sitting on like eight or ten japanese foils that i picked up for about i want to say 22 or 24 um and i'll be very surprised if those cards don't make me money um in the next year to two years on the basis that there just isn't enough inventory to meet demand on this card, even with the reprinting, um, especially in the foils, which are, of course, this is exactly the kind of card that a, an EDH player can feel confident buying in foil because it fits in so many decks. You know, mm-hmm. you're, if you're playing a, um, you know, a, a four color card for your, your new commander 2016 inspired deck, you may not go for the foils right away because you're not sure if you even like the deck yet, but chromatic lantern just fits everywhere. Um, anytime you're not playing mono something, um, it's going to be a valuable card. Um, so I, I like your pick. I like the foils. Um, it's a card to keep your eye on. I think that for the non-foils, would you agree that you know people can wait a little closer to the holidays, let that kind of peak inventory, uh, peak supply settle in for 2016, somewhere late November, early December? Yeah, definitely. I don't think you need to be doing these today, and I'm not eager to buy them at four. I kind of want to see if they can get a little closer to three anyways. Um, so yeah, I, I agree today is not the day to do this. Um, and I just want to point out, this reminds me a lot of uh, when Tarmogoyf was getting reprinted and uh, back in the original Modern Masters. And I was like, look, there, this is putting more copies out there. But the existence of Modern Masters increases demand so much more than the supply of the card increases that the price will increase. And then it did. Um, it went up after the Modern Masters reprinting. And this seems to be in kind of the same boat as the existence of these four color commanders and the partner stuff it will increase the demand for Chromatic Lantern considerably more than it will increase the supply. Yeah, it's entirely possible that vendors that have been able to blow these out whenever they felt like it, like that are persistently in low supply of this card, will be willing to be aggressive on buy lists once the Commander 2016 product starts to get cracked. The other thing that's interesting about Commander product is that if you buy a Commander deck and you intend to upgrade it, this is one of the cards that you leave intact that you're probably not replacing. And as such, it's one of the cards that you're least likely to take to your LGS and flip into something else that you need. 
Um, because of that, most of the supply should come from uh, small and mid-sized vendors cracking C Commander 2016 product and trying to sell out enough of the value before the value curve declines um, that they can get their margin. And I'm curious curious to see how much of that will happen, given that the value is so evenly spread between uh, the various decks this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, let's move on. What's your next card today? So the other mythic from Oath of the Gatewatch that just seems absurdly low to me is Lanvala the Preserver, um, uh, a pretty sexy angel for the angel tribal people that's down to, again, $2 bulk mythic status, um, and that I think long-term can easily get up over 6 uh, it's got great art. It's a solid casual angel card, like I said. Um, angel fans really are a thing more than most other tribes. And uh, the power level's real. It's a six casting cost, five, five flyer that if you're behind on life, gives you five life. And if you're behind on creatures, gives you a three, three uh, angel uh, alongside your five, five angel, all for the neat little cost of six. Um, this is a card that ha that shows up as a one of or a two of sometimes in in white based decks in standard and has, but it doesn't seem like it has the potential to really be a four of include, uh, given the way the format is headed so far. I mean, it's nice that Oath gives it some being extended for six months gives it some shot at a, a more extensive standard play, but I think this is really more of a a long term casual hold. Um, just doesn't seem like the kind of thing that's likely to be reprinted anytime soon. Um, although uh, these are exactly the kind of cards that we're seeing more and more of in reprints these days. Uh, yeah, I, I saw this on here and I was like, uh, but from the perspective of a um, EDH card, or not an EDH, like a casual sort of long-term Angel fan card, I, I like it much more uh, if you're considering it in that vein than standard. But I, it, I agree, it is, it is a powerful card, surprising it. I mean, um, if it was a rare or if it was in BFC as a mythic, I'd be less excited. But in a small set like Oath that uh, may or may not have been printed less than it was expected to be, um, yeah, I, I'm willing to take, you know, 10 or 15 copies of this, stash them away at, you know, for 30 bucks and hope that they hit five and then trade them out on Pooker or something for value. Yeah, that's fair. That's very fair. Um, all right. In the same vein as James, we were really find ourselves coming back to this well uh, almost every week. Um, I, we've probably talked about this. I, I actually didn't bother. didn't think to check the past show notes, but uh, I, there's no way we haven't mentioned this. I'm looking at Eldrazi Displacer foils. Um, I was just checking supply, and it looks like you can you can grab a couple copies in the range of $10, and I think there's a handful between 10 and 12 uh, I mean, Eldrazi Displacer is just such a good card. Uh, modern death, death and taxes loves it. It's so good at irritating the hell out of people. Um, it's a great EDH card in any deck that can play it. Um, you can blank attacks or you can also get tons of value out of your effects. Uh, I think it's probably a cube card in a lot of places because it does interesting and, and fun things. Um, it's even a, it's a solid casual card, right? Like casuals are going to enjoy this type of thing the same way they enjoy Panharmonicon. And by the way, the existence of Panharmonicon makes this placer better. So in general, this is just, there's a lot of places where the, where um, demand can come for this card. Uh, and, you know, foils at 10 bucks is pretty low when you consider that this could end up kind of an EDH staple and, and a big part of modern. Um, yeah, for $10 foil isn't bad at all. Uh, and I think this could double up, maybe even hit 25 without without too much of a stretch. Um, you know, if you logged on and, and saw that this foil was 20 bucks one day, I don't think you'd be terribly surprised. So I think this is a solid mid to long term pickup um, that can will do pretty well for you. 
there are hundreds of copies uh, available of the non-foils, but the foils only have 26 results in the near mint range on TCG. Um, lowest available foils, nine bucks with shipping, um, and pretty quickly rises up into the 15 to $20 range. Um, I think this is a very, very solid pick, even more so than, than the non-foil. Um, it's a card that exhibits what we've referred to in the past as open-ended synergy, um, a, a concept that I tried to capture in the spec score that we're going to talk about in a little bit um, in terms of a card's uniqueness. Um, you know, how uh, how unique is the effect that exists on the card? How uh, hard is it to replace with a different card? Um, and how many open-ended interactions does it have with cards that have yet to be printed? Um, and what we've seen in Magic is that many of the most powerful creatures are ones that have entered the battlefield, triggers attached to them, and the ability to blink repeatedly is relatively rare in the game. Um, and the fact that it's attached to a reasonable-sized uh, body that can both attack and defend um, and uh, make use of uh, relatively limited mana requirements is all uh, working in its favor. As you said, this is uh, an EDH demand card, an Eldrazi tribal casual demand card. It's played in multiple decks in modern. Um, uh, I run copies in Eldrazi death and taxes um, in my black-white deck in modern. Um, they're very, very good there. You can blink in and out flicker wisps uh, and the like. You can uh, do all sorts of nasty things um, in combo-tastic casual decks at your kitchen table. Um, I love this pick. Uh, I, and I think it's, you know, one of your, uh, the picks I'm most likely to pick up directly after the show. <laughs> so don't be surprised if a few fewer copies, uh, are present when you next check TCG folks. Yeah, I actually don't have any. And so I started, I wrote this down, but I'm like, man, I should really make a point to grab one of these before, before people buy them out. Cause I said that they were a good pick. Yeah, I just I think it's the kind of foil that is very likely to settle over twenty long term and could settle over thirty. Um, good one, very good. Okay, what do you got for us? Uh, my my next one is not as good. Uh, Codes like the Great Distortion is a, a potentially very powerful Eldrazi Titan that has gone pretty much nowhere. Um, no one, to my knowledge, has ever posited a, a deck that makes good use of this card. Um, but the power level is undeniable. I mean, being able to potentially lock another player out of the game, even if it's just, you know, the kitchen table and casual games by discarding cards um, uh, equal to the casting cost, that kind of like infinite loop or quasi, you know, soft lock loop of uh, countering everything they do past a certain point is certainly appealing to a certain kind of player. Um, and again, this is a, a, an iconic, a potentially iconic mythic, uh, an iconic character, not an iconic card. Um, but an iconic character in Magic history that is available for just $2.50. It could easily be an 8 to $10 mythic down the road. Um, again, no huge rush. There's plenty of inventory out there. But it's worth noting that the foils are holding a four times multiplier, which suggests that there is some demand uh, for the card. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I was a big fan of this. God knows how long ago. Um, it has fallen a bit since I last talked about it. Uh, I still got all my copies just hanging out, but I still do like the card quite a bit. Um, you know, we're still talking about a huge, awesome Eldrazi that does cool things. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not expecting this to really turn a profit within the next year. Uh, but I do think that as long as this keeps dodging reprints, this will eventually get to the point where you're going to be happy you would pick these up. Um, and you'll be like, damn, I could have got these for a couple dollars and now they're, you know, 10 or 15 bucks. Um, I, yeah, I don't know how long it'll take, uh, but I do think we'll get there. Cool. 
Uh, I think that's a pretty good roundup for this week. Let's move on to uh, metagame week and review, our uh, third segment of the week. Um, not too many like super important uh, mainstream tournaments that we need to review this week. <laughs> so we're gonna go. We're gonna take a look at uh, the brand new Frontier format results out of Japan. Um, for those that are not yet in the know, Frontier is the, the latest in a long line of uh, kind of user-generated formats. Um, Frontier's cutoff point uh, as a constructed format starts at M15. So you get basically M15 and then cons block and then origins and then everything that's in current standard. And uh, I think we both agreed, Travis, that this seemed like a fairly strange format when we first heard of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, at the very least, the cutoff seemed semi-arbitrary. Everything about this seems almost semi-arbitrary. Yeah, the, uh, apparently the, the decision point was they, they cut it off at the hologrammed, uh, cards that M15 is basically where we, we come into the little holograms that are at the bottom of all of our magic cards these days. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was because Japan has experienced an influx of counterfeits from China or, or what the, the bottom line is, because we haven't had a chance to interview anybody over at Harayuya. Um, but it, 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 it was odd to me that they didn't go back as far as, say, Return to Ravnica, which from a card supply perspective would would be would seem to me like the kind of uh, the modern era of magic, um, the, the era beyond which boxes are readily available and have not really gone up in price much. The, it didn't seem at first glance to be a format that I would be particularly interested in, um, but a couple of people at Face-to-Face Games here in Toronto... Um, which is a very vibrant uh, LGS, one of the, probably one of the busiest in North America. Um, a couple of the people I know there said that they were going to be running uh, tournaments uh, on Tuesdays, now Wednesdays apparently, um, and uh, had asked if I had any thoughts. And immediately it, it struck me that you could put together some kind of like disgusting four-color panharmonicon deck. Um, so I went ahead and threw that together and went to a tournament last night and was happily surprised. Um, by how fun the format is, at least so far. Um, hard to say this early on in the game whether the format, like so many formats, will devolve to uh, into a very rigid, known set of Tier 1 decks. But so far, the card pool, particular card pool that they've selected seems to be yielding some you know, very new and outlandish strategies. Um, and... Last night in the four-round tournament that I played, I played against uh, Mono Red Goblins, which was kind of a, a sta- very pretty similar to the standard stalwart from about a year and a half ago. Um, then played against Blue Red Spellfist Monastery Swift Spear, which was uh, played similarly to like an In Factor or a Death Shadow uh, aggro deck. Um, uh, played against a Black White Control deck that had uh, a whole bunch of pieces of the puzzle uh, once they had three years worth of removal to draw from. And uh, played against uh, a green-black elves deck that leverages Court of Calling and Shaman of the Pack to do massive damage out of nowhere. Um, games were fun. Uh, fast sometimes. Mid-range and control also seemed like viable strategies. Um, did you take a look at that list uh, from the recent tournament at Harayuya, Travis? What, what, what jumped out at you as interesting? Well... Yeah, sorry. I've got I've got a couple thoughts about this. I I want to start out and say that I'm 
I'm extremely skeptical of Frontier. And I'm not saying that from the perspective of this format doesn't look fun or interesting or anything like that. I am only skeptical in the context of profitability. Um, we're talking about a form, you know, Return the Ravnica forward has had sort of an abundance of supply relative to older magic cards, which is very important when you're considering, um, you know, specking on stuff and M15 forward uh, excessively so. So there are a lot of these cards floating around out there, Manus Riders and Siege Riders. I mean, just like tens of thousands of them. So the number of people that would need to be playing Frontier in order to see any meaningful gains on nearly any of these cards uh, would have to be dramatic. I mean, like it would need to be Wizards sanctioned, uh, essentially almost modern replacement in order to really start to push the needle on this stuff, aside from all but a very small handful of mythics that might that are basically just good anyways, um, and this will just give them a bump. Uh Getting that out of the way, uh, it, the format looks really cool. It looks like there's some really interesting stuff. Um, I don't think it's quite ready to have people uh, to really, I don't know if it will withstand the test of time. If you if you had a pro tour for this, I think you'd kind of grind out the best decks pretty fast. But just as like a casual, fun local store type of thing, I think it's really cool. Uh, I notice how much Jace is out there. Um, which is one of the very few cards I think you could you could actually see a price movement on in response to Frontier simply because Jace is good. And we're talking about Jace Rins Prodigy. Um, he's good in a lot of places. He's, he's powerful in modern. He's useful in legacy and vintage for whatever that's worth. Um, he's got other homes. So, you know, this little bit of added demand isn't going to hurt a card that we already, uh, you know, James and I have said that we, we kind of like. Um, beyond that, I was, it, it's pretty mid-rangey so far, I think, uh, mid-rangey to control-ish. Um, this Hulu event, we didn't see any real aggro. I, I kind of wonder if people are uh, maybe probably still at the point where they're more interested in just playing, you know, making wild stuff rather than just building a honed, uh, and tight, really aggressive list. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see some of those that are popular, but, uh, there's some cool stuff going on in this format for sure. And I think the surface so far has only been scratched. Well, in response to me reporting, um, the fun I had playing my deck, uh, on Twitter, and uh, this was based on having Panharmonicon in play and then playing Priest of the Blood Rite, which is a 2-2 creature for 3 and 2 black that puts a 5-5 demon into play. So that means for 5 mana you get uh, 12 power, 10 of which is flying, spread across uh, 3 creatures. Um, and then following that up with a Hornet Queen that made 8 Hornet tokens. Um, I was hooked immediately. Uh, that's exactly the kind of format I want to be playing in where that's possible. Um the response on Twitter was the, the, the usual knee-jerk response you get from most people that feel threatened by anything new, um, basically you know, pointing out that the format is unnecessary, that um, it doesn't have a future, that it's the next tiny leaders. Um, and the thing is that all of those accusations could be true. Um, uh, tiny leaders um, occupied kind of a weird space uh, that uh, drove a lot of speculation um, for a few months. And then just kind of petered out into nothingness um, as it failed to pick up support at enough stores and or support from wizards. But it's important to remember that uh, EDH, um, a, a, you know, was a fan generated format that went on for years before it got any official recognition from wizards. Um, and now is one of, you know, the most important supplemental products in the mix. Um other people had been positing um, the creation of a format to re replace Legacy called Eternal that would get rid of um, some of the the restricted cards uh, like the dual lands so that you could still use a very large card pool but could eliminate some of the barriers to entry. 
um, on the basis of ignoring the reserved list. Um, the reason that uh, I wasn't wasn't super pro um, trying to develop that format had nothing to do with whether it was going to be good or fun or whatever. I think that all of those things are are possible. And I think that a lot of the fun from Frontier as it currently stands uh, is sourced simply from the fact that it's it's a new puzzle to solve. And I'm, you know, I'm exactly the, the kind of target market. And I think it's true of the other people that showed up um, that is most interested in trying to solve unsolved, unsolved puzzles. Um, my, my interest in this format will probably wane if it is solved to the same degree that, say, standard or modern seem to be. Um, but new and 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 un you know unexplored is definitely uh a, a great reason to be calling it frontier and a big part of the draw that being yeah, said I I, I I just want to say i completely agree with you there because i if they had these at my local store i would definitely be brewing up some nonsense to go uh spew yeah, all over the place because the, the reality is you know you're putting five i mean these were pay you know pay to win tournaments they were they weren't just casually organized the store is actually supporting them they're not um you know officially wizard sanctioned i i i because they're not not a, a sanctioned format um but it's i i think it's fair game as an fnm format and the um you know people are putting up real money and winning real prizes um and they had you know 20 or 40 people they ran a tournament at four and at seven both with about 20 people in them um, so, I mean, real people are, are starting to pick up the game outside of Japan uh, or this format outside of Japan. Now, how I think this this contrasts with something like Eternal is that Wizards' big game plan is to force you to buy new cards. And they're only going to support things that lead to that result. Um, so in terms of, you know, where I'm at, I'm for me, this season, uh, Frontier will probably replace Standard. I'm just not that interested in the current Standard format, and Frontier is the Wild West, so of course I'm going to play that. Um, for other people, it might be a replacement for Modern on the basis of availability of cards, and that was certainly one of the arguments that the kind of founders of the format at uh, Hyrule Yuya, which is one of the biggest, kind of like the Star City games of Tokyo, um, uh, you know, posited was that, you know, there was, uh, these cards are largely accessible, they're relatively cheap, and it allows people that have standard decks to keep playing with them in some form or another by reusing cards like Siege Rhino and uh, uh, Mantis Rider and Jace Friends Prodigy. Now, one of the, the complaints that's been levied against the format uh, on social media is that it's just a rehash of, of the decks we saw when those cards were big. But <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna dive into these top these top eight decks now and and see very quickly that that is not the case. So I mean, I, go ahead. I, I want to hop in really quick here on that note. Uh, you know, when you start out with a brand new format and you've you know you're the first step is okay. Well, uh, I know what was good here before, so now I will try and. Uh, replicate that success somehow. So I knew that Manor Rider Cedarino was good, so I'll start there and work from that point. And it takes kind of time to dig in and really for the format to figure out who it is. We saw this when Modern started too. Uh, yep. So the fact that you'll, you're going to see familiar lists or some kind of familiar strategies is just kind of gives you a jumping off point. It takes a while to find the Grishel brands. They're not going to be week one lists. Well, and the, the other angle that plays that people need to be aware of is that when you're talking about replacing legacy and having this massive card pool, every new set that comes out sells less product for Wizard and gives you less uh, fresh blood for the format because the proportional uh, amount of cards in any given new set that can hit the power level of a card pool that big is so much less. And that was part of why I was skeptical about Eternal. 
um, in that it just doesn't meet the goals of most players. It, it will not necessarily um, drive sales uh, for new sets, and the availability of cards will still somewhat be in question. The, the thing about this format is that even if it starts relatively familiar, um, it gains access to new cards every time we get a new set. So, I mean, it's open. It's like an open-ended standard that started three years ago and will continue to march on. And eventually, give it enough time. You know, I don't, who knows what 10 years from now looks like. Um, but give it enough time, it would approximate modern anyway um, because it will catch up. Enough th- old things will get banned from modern. And, I, and I'm certain that within the next two to three years on the outside, Modern will be curated further. It will be manicured. Some old sets will be lopped off or something just to hit the refresh button, no matter what happens with Frontier. Modern is going to need a refresh at some point. It is overall uh, a format that can be in a very healthy place, but requires effort and curation, careful curation to get to that point. And um, who knows? Uh, Looking at the first place, deck though i mean we see the potential of this format to give us new and exciting things i mean this deck is running four fairy miscreant this is an origins fairy one one flyer basically basically a flying men if you remember as far back as arabian nights um that draws you a card if there's another fairy miscreant already in play um that's not a card we've seen played anywhere (laughs) i think somebody probably played it at some point in standard (laughs) not that i recall I mean, well, is... I didn't say they had success. <laughs> Just I'm sure somebody <laughs> cast it. <laughs> I, I remember people. I remember talk, people talking about that card when it was spoiled. But you're absolutely right. Like you, you, you haven't seen really seen this before. And and this is a deck that finished first. I mean, it's basically like a fairy's shell because it's still running Reflector Mage, Spell Queller, and Selfless Spirit, Thraben Inspector as well. But it looks like Fairy Miscreant makes a slot because they're running for Smuggler's Copter. You know, you, you certainly never saw a Smuggler's Copter alongside Mantis Rider because they were in different formats. So we are, you know, part of what turns on these new brews is, you know, you have this longer horizon. All of a sudden you can put cards together that that, that needed each other to be to be better. Um, I mean, that deck looks tight. Four Lightning Strike, four Jeskai Charm, four Smuggler's Copter, and a bunch of the best blue-white creatures printed in the last few years. Yeah. It, it, what's interesting is how this you can see the format shape here, too, is um, sometimes a bigger card pool can actually lead to a smaller diversity of decks, because if there's one or two cards that are really um, just so powerful that they sort of overshadow everything else, you end up with less playable strategies, because if you're not using one of those three cards, then you might as well not be playing. I think Brainstorm and Legacy is sort of a good example of this. It's just Legacy would be a lot bigger if you just removed that card, because it makes invalidate so much else that's going on. So you're you have a lot of cards that have, you know, might technically be good enough to be played in modern um but because of what else is going on in modern it was difficult to play with them you know deceiver exarch and splinter twin meant if your card cost three mana and didn't preemptively stop that combo it was close to unplayable and now cards like that are even though um frontier is a smaller card pool you may end up seeing um a lot more room for strategies and cards than you did before simply because uh it doesn't have a threat like that you know kind of preventing other strategies from showing up i mean one of the things that's interesting about this format is that they it has far less access to hate cards so graveyard hate is is not in in evidence um you don't have any cards like blood moon um there's nothing like lantern control um 
the infect style decks exist, but are at the kind of correct power level from what I've seen so far. You know, uh, both the aggro decks that I played against last night were very, very, very fast. Um, as fast as anything you've played against in standard in the last five years. Um, uh, but were beatable because you have access to languish you have access to the infect type effects um there's all sorts of two casting costs kill over the last three years and uh you've got declaration in stone against tokens there's there's a bunch of a bunch of toolbox pieces um on the mid-range of control sides that they didn't necessarily have at specific moments in the associated standard metagames um so at second place we had a pretty straightforward uh jeskai black kind of list with the jace friends prodigy soulfire grandmaster kalidas and torrential gear hulk being a notable new inclusion that hasn't had a chance to play with along with those cons block cards before they've also they're also running chandra flamecaller and nahiri harbinger with liliana the last hope um uh beating a liliana uh, uh the last hope with uh priest of the blood right last night was pretty sweet um you know this is a deck that's pretty familiar um, we had a five-color Bring Delight deck in third place that was running Butcher and the Horde with Siege Rhino and Verderous Gear Hulk. Um, I managed to get a Verderous Gear Hulk down out of the Panharmonicon deck and make a, uh, a Siege Rhino that was 12-13 last night. That was also good times. Um, and these guys get to run a tune with Aether uh, alongside their Bring Delights, uh, Declaration and Stones. And uh, as mana building, they're running Servant of the Conduit and Rattleclaw Mystic. Um, the, the mana fixing in this format is not great. You have uh, Elvish Mystic on one and then a whole bunch of mediocre stuff on two. So hopefully in the future, we'll get something a little more interesting. Uh, is, Farseek doesn't even make it in, right? Because Farseek was like M13, I think. Yeah, exactly. Uh, four color rally finish in fourth. So this is the nasty rally type deck that you would imagine it is. I've also seen brews um, that are Cryptolith Rites Jeskai Ascendancy, <laughs> which are probably going to get busted wide open sooner or later. Um, but this fifth deck is what really caught my eye. Um, and you can't tell me this format doesn't have new and exciting things going on looking at this. Can you break this one down for me? Yeah, so the name of this uh, is pretty straightforward. It's... Uh... <laughs> Siege Rhino, uh, wait, what was this? It's Shrapnel Siege Rhino. There we go. Shrapnel Siege Rhino. Um, yeah, that, those are two cards that, you know, we saw together a lot in the past. <laughs> uh, so it's using, it's using Siege Rhino alongside of cards like Scrappy Scrounger, PNLR, and Tireless Tracker, which all have, which either artifacts or have sort of incidental artifact creation. Um, to fuel some shrapnel blasts. I mean, there's only two in there. It's not like it's a lot, yeah. uh, but that's still, that's still a lot of incident, like just sort of just in your face damage pretty easily. You know, you can play a scrap heap scrounger on three, um, a, untap attack, uh, see drawn. Yeah. I mean like be, being able to blow up your scrap heaps and then, you know, get them back. Uh, is that's a lot of damage in conjunction with with the Cedrino triggers. Well, and they're and they're running four smog smugglers copter. So in the mid game, hit you for three sack for the last five. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. It's probably pretty gross. And unlicensed disintegration also ha gives them reach because it does three damage if you've got an artifact in play. And as you said, most of the creatures have incidental artifact creation. They're also running four goblin ra rabble master in there alongside two Kolagon the storm's fury so that they have a go wide game plan as well. Uh, I'm assuming a, uh, something very useful when they're facing siege rhinos that are popular in the format. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's 
Certainly, certainly clever. You know, that's that's where I think you're starting to see the edges of like what Frontier could be on a kind of its own two legs. I mean, I think what this is really highlighting is that the po- the overall power level of cards in the last you know five years, um, the, the power creep curve has moved up. I mean, what a vanilla 2-2 two, two, or 3-3 three, three, or 4-4 four, four, um, requires in terms of additional abilities to be playable even in standard, uh, the, the needle has definitely moved on that. There are a lot of big cards from 10 years ago that could <laughs> would not get played in the current standard formats because that power creep has taken hold. And inch by inch, we've we've ended up with cards that are um, more complex, arguably more interesting, um, that have more, uh, you know, more interaction and synergy potential. And the bigger you make that card pool um, without adding a bunch of broken stuff, um or or limiting factors you know like blood moon and so forth uh rest in peace and 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 uh, anti-artifact or graveyard hate uh in quantity um yeah this is a brewer's paradise uh finishing up the list so we can move on there was also a grixis emerge deck that was running minister of inquiries alongside jace friend's prodigy so that it could dump haunted dead and a prized amalgam in the graveyard and then do the usual nonsense with elder deep fiend um, and Kozlik's return, <laughs> they get to run four treasure crews, so that's always a nice place to be when you're dumping a ton of stuff in the graveyard. And they're oh running God, that's the... legal in this format. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I took my four color Panharmonicon deck to the tournament last night and paused while I was uh, walking in the door and kind of said to myself, "Wait, I'm not running treasure crews or dig through time. I, I have to be wrong. Like that just can't be right at all." Um, but who knows? I mean, we'll we'll see how this develops. But yes, two. It, Banned in modern for being too good, draw spells are legal in the format. So we'll see how warping that is and how long they last. Uh, they're uh, also running the four full copies of Collective Brutality. Um, and then we saw a kind of similar uh, build. There's another Mardu Green list in eight, then another Grixis Control list that was a little more control-oriented with some counter spells. Um, so overall, a pretty interesting set of lists. Definitely, uh, we'll put it in the show notes this week so you guys can check it out and maybe brew up for your local uh, community. Certainly, the the changes that, I, you know, to cap this off, I will say that the changes that Wizards recently announced where Standard was going back from, to two years from a year and a half, um, or at least for the fall sets, suggests that there has been a fall off uh, at the local LGS uh, level in terms of Standard demand or Standard commitment. And if you are in one of those communities where your LGS has been having trouble pulling people together for standard, um, you might want to reach out to some of your fellow players and see if anybody's interested in Frontier instead um, on the basis that you guys all might have decks lying around from years past that you can put to good use. And then, you know, send us some feedback and let us know what you think of the format. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear if uh, if other people are really really liking this format as much as um, as much as it seems like they could be. I, I uh also have to wonder imagine that treasure crews will get banned eventually because uh monetary swift sphere is legal and I'd, i'm pretty sure those two cards are enough as long as there are other cards that cost one blue and one red you're probably going to get there with with that being busted yeah we'll see the uh all right so that wraps up that segment and uh for our fourth segment this week we're going to dive into uh, a fresh topic um, there's an article that I posted over on mtgprice.com this week um, called Spec Score. Uh, and the premise that I was running with with this new article was basically to try to establish um, a regiment for evaluating speculation uh, targets in Magic the Gathering. 
Um, so the article is called Speculating on Magic Cards, Introducing Spec Score. And where I'm headed with this is to interact with the community to try to build out a way of creating a, uh, a loose scoring system uh, that can give you, you know, w- not with scientific precision, but to point you in the right direction when you're comparing multiple specs that you have on tap to make sure that you're con- considering all of the angles on the card in question and to add some rigor to your uh, card selection and commitment process to figure out how to best allocate your resources, um, the expectations that you should have for a given spec, and to um, get better at identifying uh, speculative targets early on by uh, taking a look at patterns that are consistent through cards that have spiked in the past. so the article's pretty long. I don't think we're going to get through the whole thing today, but maybe because there's uh, 11 different attributes to consider um, and each are, are worth a little bit of conversation, but maybe we can, I'll, I'll give an overview of the attributes that are being considered, talk a little bit about the scoring system, and then maybe we can look at the, uh, a handful of the first attributes and, and maybe double back on this next week. So uh, sure. spec score is composed of, as I said, Uh, 11 different uh, attributes that you should look at when considering a speculation target. And uh, in no particular order, uh, they include the rarity of the card, the current inventory levels of the card, the power level of the card relative to other cards uh, in the formats where it is relevant, the casting cost of the card, and that includes, in the case of something like a treasure cruise, the real casting cost or the true casting cost, the cost that you're going to pay, not the one that's printed on the card, Um, And so when looking at cheating cards, that becomes relevant. The color intensity, meaning how many different colors, and that would include the colorless symbol um, that the Eldrazi from last year made popular. Uh, The number of copies played when the card is played. The number of formats that it's played in. um, And their their relative importance. Um, The uniqueness of the card versus other cards. The current price versus its potential based on the other things you know about it the recency of the last printing, and the number of printings, and in the case of foils, the number of foil printings. Uh, does that sound like a reasonable list to you, Travis? Yeah, I thought you did a great job with with uh, with your first outing here. Um, and, and I say first outing because you said that you'd planned on kind of revising and that in it. So using your words here, not mine. Um, I think I think you did a great job in capturing a lot of the concepts. Uh, some of them are pretty straightforward, you know, stuff like rarity doesn't require. Um, uh, there's there's not really a lot of subjectivity in there. Uh, you know, you've got color intensity, which I think is a really good one. I also like that you captured um, the casting cost, uh, which I think can sometimes be a little easier to overlook. Um, sometimes we look at cards and we see a lot of of a lot of power on the card and we see a lot of utility, but you know, it's easy to forget that a one mana spell probably gets played twice as often as a two mana spell, which gets, or which gets played twice as often as a three mana spell, which gets played twice as often on average as a four mana spell. And it's like, well, sure. This four mana spell is amazing, but you know, one mana spells get played so much more for the most part um, that, that they're really not nearly as good as you'd hope that it would be. So I, I yeah. think you captured, Take a look at Seance for uh, a four mana spell that's not getting there. Well, yeah, sure. <laughs> so I think I think there's a lot here. There's you know there's some stuff in here too that I I don't I read your article and and I think that people are going to come back with a lot of nitpicking, which uh, is not necessarily unfair. But um, you know I, I I look at this and I kind of think about um, 
what was it? Voltaic Brawler? Is that the one? The artifact that doubles with energy? You know, yep, you know yep. what I'm talking yep, about? Doubles yep. its power yep. and toughness. Uh, is it Voltaic Brawler? Uh, yeah. Uh, no, not a Voltaic Brawler. You're talking about uh, uh, Electrostat- pummeler? Electrostatic Pummeler. Yeah, okay, okay. So that's a card which I think is uh, is interesting to consider because I know people are going to give you a hard time probably about not really being able to catch that. But I think that's exactly the type of card that you can't. Um, and the reason for that is that is an extremely specific confluence of factors, um, which we, we, you know, we can go into, I guess, well, whatever we're talking about now, I might as well talk about it. Um, you know, it, 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 it's not going to have a really great score based on this, but it's only good. It's only jumped in price because, um, you had an ability that, uh, did not cost mana that we've seen we've seen we've seen that ability multiple times over the years but none of them quite worked in the same way this one was just kind of quote unquote free and it also ended up in standard with a bunch of um with just enough combat tricks and also ended up in standard with just enough other metagame uh tweaks that it was playable so um you know this isn't going to manage to capture everything um but really you you shouldn't you shouldn't be able to create something that can capture a card like electrostatic pummeler. That's <laughs> only going to be something that you're going to figure out uh, through essentially extensive testing. But other than that, I think it's I think it's a great, a, definitely a great place to start. And if it serves to be only one particular um, uh, data point in your consideration of a card, it's still a useful tool. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, what we're looking for here is to is to create a holistic process of of card evaluation that is never going to be perfect or complete, but which can um, add discipline to your process and also try to point you in the right direction. If you think time and again, people run cards by us that for one small reason or another, some combo they figured out they think are going to be the next big thing. And they, they ask us if we should go, they should go buy hundreds of copies. <laughs> and, yeah, I've had and, so many and, of these. and frequently I think that those cards would fail um, these tests. Um, and it's interesting that you, you mentioned electrostatic pummeler, because I actually think that if you, if you run it through this model, you'll get a pretty decent score, uh, a middling score, not an amazing score. Uh, it's not going to score like a mox emerald would, uh, I mean, a mock sapphire, for instance, um, but it's it's definitely going to score reasonably well. So we should put it on, that one in particular on the back burner when we decide to talk through some examples. Um, for now, let's let's dive in on some of these attributes. Um, you mentioned that rarity uh, is pretty straightforward. Everybody knows that we have you know commons and uncommons, rares and mythics, and now we have ultra mythics in the form of the masterpiece series. Um, not everybody is familiar with the specifics of the ratios, you know, that mythics appear in approximately 12.5% of packs, uh, or one in every eight packs, um, or that the masterpiece rarity rate is one in 144 packs, which is just, uh, you know, 0.7% chance in any given booster. Um, and, uh, those are interesting things to be aware of and important if you really want to be serious about speculating on magic cards. You need to understand just how much things get ratcheted up from each uh, 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 rarity level to the next. And also understand that, um, for instance, masterpieces um, have prices that are actually far too low um, given the 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 true rarity of those cards and what that what that suggests about your ability to unload cards that are say over $50. Um, much easier to 
catch a, a ascending star at the $5 range and unload in the 20 to $25 range in standard than it is to say grab something at um, 100 ride it to 350 and then sell those. Um, the reason for that is that as as we uh we deal with every day in, in the in the agency world where my my day job resides. Um, there are very distinct price points in the Western market that um, define people's willingness to spend money. And it is um, at, during the holiday season, for instance, twenty dollar gifts in certain communities um, are almost certain to be your best sellers. And in other communities, ten dollar gifts are essential to have you know on end cap displays. And you're going to have a much harder time moving $100 or $300 products. Um, there are some exceptions. You know, I, uh, high-end cell phones, because of their ubiquitous uh, nature and the uh, you know, near-essential um, nature of uh, the ser- services that they put on offer to us all in our day-to-day lives, have been able to handle you know, price points in the $500 to $1,000 range. But for most other things that you purchase, um, keep in mind what you pay for those. Um, and apply that to how you look at rarity and the price points of cards. Um, so we're in this model, in the spec score model, we're assigning points based on um, you know, the, the value of the attribute that we're talking about. And sometimes we give negative points uh, if it works against you, and sometimes we give positive points. So for example, super mythics, uh, things like expeditions, judge foils, and masterpieces, we give 15 points for that rarity. We give five points for a mythic. For rare, we give nothing. And on uncommons, we give minus 10 and commons minus 20. And that's a reflection of just how difficult it is to make money on a common spike or an uncommon spike and how much easier it is if something is extremely rare. And I think it's, that's something It's that... possible those numbers should be even more dramatic, really. Yeah. Like possible. common should be like negative 100. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's important to... For, you know, we've, we've mentioned this, but I'll mention it again, that these point values are by no means fixed at present. The next big step in this process is that I'm going to run a whole bunch of uh, statistical analysis against the most expensive cards in the major formats um, and try to get a sense of how many of the, how important each of these factors is, how uh, coincidental they are um, versus causal in terms of price spikes. And, uh, once we have a sense of which of these factors most clearly suggest a spike as possible, we will adjust the numbers accordingly. Um, so these are a good starting point, uh, is what I'm saying. Uh, the next, the next factor is inventory levels. We've talked about this time and again that uh, you know if there are a handful of copies available, we're going to give uh, that's going to be a really good situation. If you've got um, you know a few dozen to a hundred copies of something that's sort of interesting, um, especially if it's a recently printed card and you were expecting to see a lot more inventory. And if there's hundreds of cards available, um, as there, as there were with a couple of my specs this week, there is absolutely no reason to be jumping in to grab mirror pool early. Yeah. Um, I agree. You know, and some of these, I, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about it now. Do you think it's possible that there should be sort of an identification of which ones are more important than others? Like, do you think that, for instance, color intensity or casting costs is more important than like recency of last printing? Yeah. And I think that that once we run the statistical analysis against the various factors and isolate those, then you can go back and say, okay, we know that um, uh, this factor, uh, rarity, 
is so much more important than recency of last printing or so much more important than uh, color intensity that the points associated with it have to be doubled, for instance. Um, so again, the points have to be considered, point allocations have to be considered a starting point, and then we need to prove it out by doing some math. Okay, okay. So next on the attribute list is power level. Um, here we're talking about the relative power level of the card in the formats in which it is played versus other cards. So, for example, in just about any format you can name, Soul Ring and Ancestral Recall would be considered high power cards. Um, we give those plus 10 points. A playable card, just your you know average, average card that's good in the format where it was printed, like Incinerate or Fleece Mane Lion, um, you know, a particularly good creature or a particularly good um, you know, removal spell that's in the right point on the power curve, but better than other things in the format. We don't give any bonuses for that. That's just, you know, you know that it's playable good for you. Um, if something is extremely low playable, like our low power card, because it seems insanely unplayable, something like Codex Shredder, which showed up in Lantern Control um, and blew people's minds when it was completely unplayable pretty much everywhere else, we take 10 points away. Um, and that's meant to reflect that some of your outsider specs where you find some, you know, random obscure combo um, that you have to build the entire deck around and who knows if that deck will be any good. Um, that should count against you when you're trying to evaluate your spec potential. Yeah, this seems like one of the spots that's going to be the trickiest to kind of come to any um, conclusions on uh, is is the power level because that's, you know, how do you rank a card like, um, well, like Electrostatic Pummeler or some of these sort of more corner cards or Mishra's Bauble, right? Like what <laughs> that that is a place where uh, there's definitely going to be some room for uh, judgment to come in in a greater fashion than you see in some of the other areas. So one of the ways that I've tried to address these, uh, some of the attributes that are definitely not uh, math-based and are, are, are um, relative <laughs> and contextual is that we go with smaller uh, increments of difference and we start with the assumption that any card you're considering, considering, for instance, in power level is probably just playable card zero points. Um, and both the cards you mentioned, I would argue, are in that power band. Whereas something like a Treasure Cruise or a Dig Through Time, you know, a card that is so powerful it may be banned, um, gets a high power bonus, uh, unless it's played in a format where it's everybody knows from day one it's likely to be banned, in which case it probably gets a negative. Um, and then all the other, you know, 90% of cards ever printed are in that low power band, which are very unlikely to take off, except in very specific scenarios where suddenly their power, quote unquote, is unlocked by synergy with some other random card. Mm-hmm. So yep. I think that's a good way, a good way to put it. It almost it, it almost seems like it could be theoretically uh, exponential too. like dig through time is just so dramatically better than other stuff it's in its own tier um that, that i just i guess that category in particular seems like it will take some time to really figure out we'll probably need to um it, it'll take several iterations i think before you kind of start to to get a, a feel for where cards should land it kind of reminds me of like the almost like the um richter scale for earthquakes right where like a seven is a lot more than just one more than six yeah exactly the um so one of the ways we're going to handle that is some of the subjective stuff 
Um, when we build the spec score calculator, and that is incoming functionality for mtgprice.com that will be installed on every card details page alongside um, the vendor pricing and the price history data for the card, um, we will have a spec score displayed. And for the subjective elements of the spec score, um, you'll be able to basically click the parts of the interface and add your ratings. So if you disagree with the power level that people have voted on for the card in question in the formats in which it's played, you can um, put in your own rating and all of that will be averaged over time so that once a card's been out for a while, um, we have a pretty firm consensus on some of the subjective stuff that isn't absolute, but at least gives us a pretty good sense that the, the score uh, is coming from a, a place that is, uh, has been vetted by the community. Uh, well, that's, that works. So one of the other things we're looking at is the casting cost, obviously one of the biggest determining factors. Uh, if you want a card to be playable in a lot of formats, especially older high power formats like uh, modern, but also legacy, vintage, um, et cetera, then the casting cost in pretty much every format except EDH will be strongly determine, uh, a, a very strong determining factor um, in whether or not uh, the card is a decent spec. Um, obviously, cards that cost zero, like lands or moxes, um, have the greatest potential because the, um, zero casting cost things can fit into almost any deck, so it gives you a much wider variety uh, of decks that can bring the card to the forefront. Um, interestingly, though, I, I got some good feedback the other day because the way I set this up was that zero casting cost slash lands was 10 plus 10 points, one to two casting cost was five, three to four was a zero, no bonus, and then five plus was minus five. Um, and Travis, what do you think of splitting one and two? Is the difference between a one casting cost spell and a two casting cost spell so great that they should have their own tiers? Uh, I could see a marginal difference. I mean, it, I, I, I guess the question becomes at, you know, what granularity does the score start to matter? So for instance, in the article, you run through an example that comes out with like a 62 or something like that. Uh, is the, how big is the difference between a 57 and a 62? I mean, you're, you're pretty much in the same general ballpark. So I think you could, you might be able to give a little bit of, um, of deviation there, but I just kind of wonder like if that granularity is actually going to really help you make any decisions at that point, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's possible that because the, the point allocations at each tier of each attribute are still untested statistically that, um, they would not be, uh, statistically meaningful and that a 62 compared to a 57 could still be two, you know, wildly dissimilar cards. So that's part of why it has to be run through, um, you know, that, uh, regression analysis or whatever ends up getting done to, um, figure out where the allocations will be most, most, uh, beneficial. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, there's a huge difference between a monastery swift spear on one and a, and a monastery swift spear that costs two. Um, for sure. So I, I think that I would probably end up testing it out, uh, assuming that the tiers are different for one and two. Um, so I think that's, you know, it's it's a an evolution of the model that is is already sitting uh, sitting right with me that it needs to be made. Um, I, go ahead. I was say, I guess I just kind of thinking about it. I guess the, the gap between one and two really is pretty dramatic. Uh, you're right. Grim, uh, not Grim Flare. Um, Monastery Swift Spear on two is a very different card. Even if you give it a power and toughness, it's much worse on two. Um, 
especially when you're talking about like modern or what have you as a format of interest, because that is a difference between um, being able to play multiple copies a turn earlier, which can really start to add up. Uh, so, yeah, I don't I, I, I guess that is a pretty impactful component of a card. I mean, it's also like saying Lightning Bolt versus every other two cast and cost incinerate clone that we've ever seen. Right. Yeah. So that's right. probably correct. That feedback from the user was was pretty helpful. Um, color intensity uh, is another major factor. So the you know how many different colors do you need to play something? And as I said, this includes the colorless uh, requirements that were introduced in the last year. Clearly something with no color uh, or a land um, that isn't necessarily color dependent would get plus 10 points. Uh, a one color plus five, two colors, now you're not getting any bonus. That's a zero pointer. Three colors is minus five and four colors is minus 10. Um, would you think that maybe the penalties for three and four are too little? Is that another case where um, likelihood of play is even worse? Uh, God. Uh, I'm not sure. Possibly. I think it is worth thinking about. Um, you know, it almost seems like the, the single color zero color is a reasonable pickup. Whereas four color should be a humongous detriment. Like four color should hurt a lot more than one color should help. I guess maybe there's a way to, is a way to think about that. Uh, cause four colors, I mean, God, where are you ever casting that? Yeah, and th there's a reason we have very few four-color cards in Magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, in fact, there's uh, only, uh, what, 10, right? Well, it, um, and even in the C Commander 2016 product, which I think some people expected to be like a plethora of forecasting cost spells um, and all sorts of craziness, like we just didn't get that because not only does that really mess with the color wheel and kind of render it uh, inoperable, um, it, it just doesn't make for good play because you get stuck on mana so much more frequently. So I, th I think that maybe minus 10 for four colors is too little. Maybe it's supposed to be minus 20, something definitely. Worth. I, I think you just group three color plus because honestly, four colors is virtually irrelevant. Um, and I don't see three colors really behaving any different than five. I mean, part of that, part of that depends on the, where, what format the card is played in and how good the fixing is in that format. Because when you have fetch lands and shock lands, you know, uh, we've seen repeatedly that three color cards are just fine. I mean, concert Tarkir block with, with access to uh, excellent color fixing led to four color decks being kind of the standard in that format. And certainly in modern, um, there are benefits to playing one and two color decks and, and having Phyrexian mana available certainly uh, has twisted things uh, through the abuse of both mutagenic growth and Gataxian probe. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's, there's a couple of different angles that need to be considered with color intensity. Well, that, that's one of those things uh, when I talked about like electrostatic pummeler, um, they can be difficult to uh, assign a really good number to because you it's a perfect point. Cons of Tarkir, three color card. Sure, no problem. I'll play multiple three color cards of different sets. Uh, and for whereas, you know, standard right now, it's like you can get out of here with that or other formats, Theros block, like you kidding, you barely wanted to play one color. So um, it's, it's one of those things where like you can kind of put some numbers on this, but it will require some judgment from the person doing it to understand like, well, if I'm thinking about this card in a standard perspective, how much of a penalty is three colors relative to normal, for instance, to average? Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, so actually, we only have a couple more attributes to, to go through. So let's just fly through them and then 
we'll move along. So copies played obviously is a very major factor. If they're only playing one copy or two copy in the deck, uh, I subtract points five and 15 respectively. And then three copies gives you plus five and four copies is the full plus 15. Do you think, um, do you think that this is perhaps a tad redundant? Um, simply because a card that uh, costs four mana is probably not a four of and a and a card that caught like it's just it's so much easier it the the casting cost and the power level are sort of going to capture that quantity played like that's why the low casting cost is important because you can play a lot of copies um where it's really difficult to play a seven mana card now when you think about something like uh i don't know some uh well the treasure cruise doesn't work some expensive spell that sneaks in because it's part of a combo like gristle brand it the model falls apart a little bit because he's a very expensive card but you are never and there's no you're not cheating his cost either like you are with treasure cruise but you're never actually paying full price with them but i guess and he, you see him played as a four of very frequently, even though he's expensive. But I do, and, I, and I'm not saying this wrong. I'm just kind of thinking about it out loud. Like maybe, maybe um, quantity used is sort of redundant when you look at a combination of like uh, casting cost and power level sort type of thing. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, th- those two together could be strongly predictive of copies played, and because of that, you might not need copies played in the model. Um, definitely worth looking at. It's interesting that you mentioned Grizzlebrand because I would argue that his casting cost is two in this model because that's the wow. cost he's most most frequently cast for. You could argue that maybe it's five if you're talking about through the breach and and yeah. show and tell and you know average somewhere in the middle there to come up with your your number. You know it's definitely not seven. Um, his default casting cost and his his color intensity therefore would not be considered to be four black either. Um, you would you would consider it to be almost colorless based on the way that he's cheated that he's only ever played when he's cheated into play means that you can treat him as a different kind of card. Um, yeah, yeah. I suspect, however, that you know, regardless of whether those two factors contribute specifically to copies played, copies played is probably would be my guess that when we run the math, we'll find that it is one of the strongest determining factors in the potential for a spike, because quadruple demand is just simply mathematically much more important than a singular demand. And one of the reasons that I like specs that are not, uh, I like non-commander specs much better than commander specs generally is that any given commander deck only needs one copy of a card. And the only time that I change my mind on that is if it's you I, a card that every deck I'm building for commander wants, something like a Chromantic Lantern. Now we're in very interesting territory because t- potentially they want more than four copies of the card. It's potential that some of these EDH players own eight or ten copies of of Chromatic Lantern, which would certainly help explain why no one can ever keep them in stock. Well, I I almost I'd I'd be curious to see what the I guess the correlation is between um, between casting costs and quantities played. If you know when you kind of get around to doing a real statistical analysis of this, because what you might find is, yeah, quantity played is a hum is very very predictive of success but it also turns out that there's like this really hugely huge correlation between quantities played and casting costs as it is so it's like oh you can just cut out quantities played and still get basically the 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 mana cost will have essentially done that predicting for you yeah 
So the, one of the other factors remaining is uh, format dominance, which basically is, is a representation of how many different formats the card is played in. Um, I also suspect that when we get uh, deeper on the math, we're going to find that this is a very uh, strong predictive uh, tool. Um, multi-format All-Star is the kind of card that uh, it shows up in Standard, Modern, Legacy, Vintage, Casual, EDH. At least three of those would be my thinking. You know, Who knows if that's the final determining determinant, but I think it's either three or four formats that you want, ideally. Um, it's not Legacy anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly most of my specs tend to be Standard, Modern, Overlaps, um, a card that's great in Standard, played as a four of, and is also showing up uh, as similarly as a four of in Modern has kind of been my bread and butter, and I'm thinking about cards like Coligan's Command Foils, uh, Collected Company Foils, Jace Friends Prodigy, um, you know, these, these things that are essentials in Standard and then have additional demand on top of that that... Uh, takes place in the same time period has has been uh, a very good place to be the last few years. Um, modern plus standard, I give ten points. That's you know just the two formats. Modern or standard is five points. Uh, and then it gets a little wonky. Like I was thinking, like old cards that are EDH or casual staples are plus three points, but plus ten if they're foil because old foils are so rare. Uh, a legacy or vintage staple is plus one point because unless it's a foil in which case a full plus 10 since foils in those formats are both rare and in high demand but regular cards that aren't played anywhere else might not be um and then just a random new card for edh or casual you know uh, something like a stonehaven outfitter would be zero cards um not dominating any format i i think um i think this is a uh one at the very least um i am going to propose a a name change um I, what I find myself referring to as a sort of organic term that I stumbled upon was uh, demand profile. So I can get with that. Uh, kind of just thinking about who wants it, why do they want it type of thing. And I guess when I use it in my articles, it tends to be a little broader than what you're looking at here. So when I talk about the demand profile, a lot of times I'm referring also to the quantity that the deck plays. Um, but I think it, it kind of it might maybe it captures the idea of like, who are you marketing this card for essentially uh, who's interested so i think i think this definitely is um is one of the categories i think that probably has the most room for tweaking uh for trying to kind of pin down a little bit because this is is this is tricky um yeah i don't know like i almost i almost want to say like maybe you maybe you just toss it out and you say oh all we care about is quantity played and like uh, and that type of thing. But I guess that doesn't really capture a card that hits standard modern EDH as opposed to just a card that hits standard. Um, well, and but the, in it, and I, I mean, I'm also reluctant, but I'm at the same time reluctant to go, okay, well, three formats, so that triples it. Cause that's not necessarily quite accurate either because standard demand is going to push a lot more, you know, like modern demand and standard demand for this card are never going to be equal. There's going to be, if it's good and standard, there are going to be way more people in standard that want it than there are in modern. So it almost seems like you could give a per format, like if you want it in standard, it's worth this much. If you want it in worth, if it's good in modern, it's worth this much. It's less, but it's worth this much. If it's good in EDH, it's worth this much. And then maybe, maybe there, you know, if you really want to get particular with it, you could then add, um, you know, greater than the sum of the parts type thing. So standard's worth five, modern is worth two. If it's both of them, it's worth 10, 
right? Like it's worth more than the sum of the parts because being good in both of them kind of gives it something extra. Yeah, that's, I don't know, that's, 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 that's some good thinking um, and definitely worth uh, applying to that portion of the model. Um, I mean, one of the thing, one of the good uh, pieces of good news about this is that because there is a relatively uh, a relative uh, plethora of uh, deck lists, uh, top eight, top sixteen, top thirty-two deck lists for all major tournaments these days posted online, um, we're going to have to do some work to pull those deck lists into MTG Price, but we'll be able to crunch those numbers and apply them. So we're going to be able to know kind of in real time uh, where format demand is coming from. And, you know, you'll be able to see spec score shift um, from week to week, day to day, month to month um, as the demand profile for the card changes. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm down with that. And I, th- I think that's fair, too. You know, some of these cards are going to de- magic changes. And uh, if this can adapt for changing utility of cards, and I think that's that's important. Yeah. So the last, uh, the last two uh, major uh, attributes... Uh, actually, there's three left, sorry, but we'll go through them real quick. So one is uniqueness. Um, this one is very subjective. Um, and because of that, I've put a pretty narrow band. Very unique uh, is something like Blood Moon, you know, like the only, other than Choke, the only effect of its type in its entire format. Restore um, Balance. Yeah, something like that. Like plus 10 points. Somewhat unique is just kind of the best card of limited options. So that would be, you know, something like... Uh, Treasure Cruise, uh, in its format, the best card draw spell. Um, and, uh, but you know, there's other card draw spells. It's not that you can't replace them. And if you're playing in older formats, you've got things like Ancestral Recall. So, you know, it's by no means the only card that does that. Um, but some of the pieces of say something like Lantern Control would be considered very unique as well. And then a common effect is just, you know, your random two casting cost lightning bolt or three casting cost direct damage spell to creatures. Um, the kind of card that's going to get printed year after year after year because every standard format needs it and you're going to see it reprinted with minor variations dozens of times. What do you think about uh, Grim Flare? Where does that land? I, I think it's somewhat unique in the sense that it's a two mana, two, two, like it's a bear with uh, fairly unique abilities. Um, it's not very unique because it's not like it's a two mana four, four or something. Um, but uh, I mean, sorry, it is a two mana four, four in certain circumstances. So like Tarmogoyf, uh, it it would uh, be in that somewhat unique category. But it's not, for instance, uh, Grizzlebrand would be very unique. It's the, like the, one of the only ways to draw seven cards at instant speed. How about Tarmogoyf? I, I would put that somewhat unique. I mean, tar- Tarmogoyf is just the the cheapest vanilla creature in modern. Right. It- it, it, it is. I do wonder, you know, is is the cheapest, uh, absolute, unquestionably most cost-efficient creature in the format by its nature unique? Maybe you're right. Maybe because its, po- its power curve is so high in the format, it would qualify as very unique. I mean, you could certainly make the argument that regardless of the number of times they've printed it, it's held its price because everybody wants to own a four of set because it's considered the best card in the format, even if very relatively few decks in modern are even running it right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I don't say these to say like, I think you're wrong. It's more just like, I'm kind of thinking out loud. I, I think that this is a good example of where subjectivity comes in and somebody who plays modern day in day out is going to have a very different opinion than, you know, random speculator X, uh, especially if they've played yeah. with Tarmogoyf. Um, and it's also a little weird because there's some definite like conceptual overlap here with power level. Um, 
But uniqueness is, is trying to get a sense of, is this a card that's the only card of its type that does the thing it needs to do? So I'm thinking here of, you know, right. some of the pieces in Infect or Gitaxian Probe or Become Immense um, or uh, some of the pieces of Lantern Control that have to be those exact pieces, uh, you know, ensnaring bridge and Lantern Control. Like does, the deck doesn't even exist without the card, right? So if, if the card gets removed from the format, that, that archetype is pretty much dead because they can't stop people from attacking them while they set up their, their long-term combo. Um, and so, you know, uh, ensnaring bridge is very unique. Um, only cards like ghostly prison or propaganda have even approximated, uh, the, the placement, the, the role that that card plays in the formats where it's good. Mm-hmm. So then we have current price versus potential. Um, I wrote a whole bunch about this in the article, but it basically boils down to this. Where is the price of the card versus the highest it could be given what else you know about it? So when we were talking about electrostatic pummeler when it was available for like 75 cents or whatever, um, that has a, would get a high rating here because it's it's a rare that we know can hit five or six dollars, but most rares sit in bulk rare status somewhere around a dollar. And in standard, uh, heading into a pro tour, that can be a really nice ratio to try to exploit if you're convinced that the card is going to be in in, in evidence and do well. Um, uh, alternatively, a card that like Chandra uh, Torch of Defiance is going to get negative points for being at $60 before it ever showed up in a standard deck. Um, that's going to count against a card like that because um, there's no meat left on the bone for you to chew on. Yeah, I think this is quietly perhaps the most important, one of the most important factors on here because it doesn't matter how good the card is. It doesn't matter if every single one of the other factors lines up. If the price is already too high, then there's nothing left to do. Like, yep, turns out this card was good, but it's too late now. It all like I it 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 almost like this exists at a level above all of the other ones because, like, you essentially play, you know you figure out your score, your spec score for the card, and then you go okay. I know how I know that it's a 55. Now, how much does it cost and how much do I think it could cost? And that will sort of get you. And then, you know, you're you're essentially making that decision at a different level than I think you are like, you know, uniqueness or casting costs. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I've got three or four favorites here that I think are going to pan out when we run run the statistical analysis as being the best predictive factors. But little point in anyone getting uh, their panties and a bunch are arguing uh, with us over it in, until we see what the math says, at which point, you know, we will absolutely be adjusting the model. I think we, everybody needs to look at this as a living, breathing thing that they can contribute to, to help advance the thinking around speculation, um, which, you know, a lot of, you know, one of the reasons I did this was because I, I just kept hearing from MTG finance people that it was impossible to speculate on cards or that it wasn't profitable. Um, and since it is for me, um, and I'm very honest with myself about my failures and track everything very accurately. And I know that it is, and I know that it's worked for you as well. And I, and I know other people, um, that, that are not as uh, vocal as us, but are making even more money. Um, the, you know, I wanted to see if not that we could bring science to the equation, but that we could bring regiment and logic, um, and I think that if everybody contributes a little bit here and there, um, and we run this, run the numbers on this, you know, again and again, and then put together a model um, that is uh, that evolves as things shift, um, 
you know, the, the announcement of masterpieces, for instance, would have had, would have forced an update in the rarity profile of the model. Um, we're going to get somewhere. I think we will. Um, so the very last thing here is the recency uh, of the last printing and the number of printings. So I, I consider these to be kind of like two sides of the same coin, but they are a little distinctive. Um, I take away points, obviously, if you're currently in print. If you're two to three years old, that's kind of average. No points for you there. Three to five years, you get plus five. And if you're five plus years old without a reprint, you get uh, 10 points. Um, and then on the number of printings, uh, two printings is zero points, one printing is plus five, and three or more is minus five. I've, so the, the number of copies is, is sure, that's fine. I'm a little curious about the thinking behind the recency of printing, because you're giving, am I understanding this correctly, that you give more points the older the card is? Uh, is that correct? The older the last printing was. So what led me to this thinking was, think about pain lands, things like brush land that everybody expected to see in the Commander 2016 product once we had the some of the lands revealed. Um, Brushland is only $10 right now uh, because it's useful in Bantel, Drazi, and Modern. Um, it had multiple, multiple printings 10 years ago. Um, but because all of those printings are more than five years old, um, it was able to spike, despite being a dollar card forever. Um, because there just wasn't enough supply. And this ties into, taps into the concept of attrition that we've talked about a, a lot, that it doesn't really matter how many copies of a card are printed. Um, it matters how many copies of a card are in circulation at retail. If they're not in an inventory management system for an online vendor or a store, then they may as well not exist because they can't, they are not a functional part of the market and cannot contribute to um, the tug of war between supply and demand. All right. I'm going to make somewhat of a suggestion here. Tweak number of printings to um, instead of instead of just being how many times it's been printed, reflect um, volume of supply, uh, a volume of not not on the market, but like volume of total supply. Like, you know, because a uh, standard card from Kaladesh is humongously more humongously larger quantity um, than a card that was printed in seventh, eighth and ninth edition. Uh, right. Like we can agree to that. So, which, which is the other half of what your equation tries to capture. So change half of it to be how many copies total raw are out there on the market that could be out there. And then the other half of it, when you talk about recency, I would, I would start saying, I'm, I'm inclined to say the older it is, you start taking away points um, and use that as like a reprint concern. So uh, you can take a, you can take a card that's very old that has yeah. See, only has a very small market, a very small volume on the market. So that's going to give it a really good score. But if it's been a long time since it's been reprinted, it almost should be counted against it because you're like, damn, this thing could come any day now. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people that would agree with you on that. Um, one of the reasons I'm definitely on the side of things that thinks that the sky is falling, there's too many reprints, ah, look at all the reprints, is just a falsehood. Um, I, I'm going to run numbers on this because it's time somebody did um, as part of this, this research. Um, because I think that we have gone from a tiny, tiny fraction of cards being reprinted in any given year to a tiny, tiny fraction times two. And though double is certainly double, 
um, double of 0.001% is nothing. Um, yeah. and, and my argument to people over the last few months has been, has been along those lines that, yeah, anything could be reprinted, but likelihood of any given card being reprinted is still so low. I mean, we got tons of reprints in the Commander 2016 product, but hardly any good specs got caught out by that. I mean, scavenging ooze, maybe um, a couple of the the dual lands that were reprinted we in there. Fate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a few things in there, but out of the like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cards that are worth more than $5 or more than $10 or more than $20, how many in any given year? I'm not sure that it's going to prove out that it's statistically significant that reprint risk is one of the things that be considered. But uh, it's certainly worth testing because you're right. If, if it is statistically significant, that it should absolutely be part of the model. Um, and, you know, uh, it's something that people are worried about, uh, that people talk about. So we should definitely be testing it. Well, yeah, yeah. And I mean, if, if you come to the conclusion, like you, you if you kind of look at the numbers and you say, okay, it turns out this really doesn't happen with enough significance to be important. And that will kind of live outside of the model and people can use their judgment based on what they know um, to make decisions of how important that should be per card. That works. That, you know, that's fine by me. Uh, I would also, when, you know, when you get to doing that, um, I would consider uh, measuring the number of reprints is irrelevant. Measuring the number of reprints on cards that cost certain number of dollars, I think is a much better scale because they could print a set that's a complete reprint, but if not a card in it was worth more than a dollar, then it didn't matter, right? Um, you know, if none of the cards were worth more than a dollar before they reprinted it, then it hardly matters. Whereas uh, Commander 16, which has four reprints but they're all really good all that were all otherwise really good spec targets that matters tremendously so just you know i will throw in that caveat that there has to be some consideration for how you're measuring the impact of a reprint or what you're counting as a, a reprint i guess yep that's worth, worth worth trying to factor in for sure so we spent a ton of time on that i apologize for anybody that was hoping for fast finance this week sometimes we do run long when we've got something interesting to talk about and we hope that you guys will agree that this was an interesting subject um we've got a bunch of uh, i'm going to do some research this week uh some preliminary statistical analysis to try to figure out which of these factors are most coincident uh with for instance the top 100 cards by price in modern uh, and try to come back with some data on that. And, and then we will talk about what are some of the findings. We'll do some sample spec scores uh, during the next episode and uh, then open the doors for other people to put up their hands to try to contribute their own thoughts and ideas, uh, potentially some math uh, if we falter. Um, and, uh, you know, let's work together and try to get a better um, uh, methodology in place via spec score for evaluating your magic speculations. Oh man, I can't wait till our picks of the week have uh, have to have a spec score column. <laughs> and, and and our spec scores don't measure up. That's uh, that will be interesting. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I'm calling out this card this week. Uh, it's got a spec score of 15. Uh, but you know, I think there's a real winner. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> Argument better be strong. Uh, yeah, pretty much. All right, so that's a wrap for this week. Where can people find you online, Travis? Well, I'm on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, I write every Wednesday MTG Price. My article went live today. If you're listening to this on the day we recorded it, which you're probably not really. Uh, and I also do the webcast uh, MTG or uh, Cartel Aristocrats uh, most-ish Wednesday, Mondays. 
Cool. And you guys can find me, as always, on Twitter at MTGCritic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com, including an ongoing series that I'll be running on SpecScore. You can find the most recent article on MTGPrice.com. And I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com ProTrader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, that brings us to, uh, to oh my God, this was a long episode. Bring, just looked at the time. <laughs> brings us to uh, a close. I thought it was a really good episode. I thought we had a lot of interesting stuff here and hopefully people will, uh, will find it useful. Yep. So thanks for joining me. Thank you, Travis. And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. <laughs>